0: Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability.
1: We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, Sustainable Simplicity Close to Home available in our online marketplace. In the book, we have woven an easy to digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process.
0: For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code The Good Dirt in our online marketplace. So use the code The Good Dirt, T H E G O O D D I R T, at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer Online Marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody.
2: I think homesteading just comes back to a mindset. It's not about what's outside your window necessarily. It's about wanting to live more in alignment with the seasons, wanting to rely more locally for your diet. It's about using your hands. I think it's just more about hands on, local, seasonal living.
0: You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. We want to put the microphone in front of the
1: voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers,
0: and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in.
1: Hello, Good Dirt listeners. Thank you so much for being here with us today in yet another conversation about slow, sustainable living.
0: If you are here for the first time, welcome. We're Mary and Emma, mother, daughter. And if you're a returning listener, we're so glad to have you back. Emma,
1: can you believe it's been almost two years since we started this podcast?
0: I really can't. We've just hit the ground running here. So when we started it, it was pre-COVID. We had no idea, obviously, what was in store. And then just throughout the pandemic, it's just been such a wonderful way to connect with people and keep this going and get our message out there. And inspire others. It's just been so lovely. And we've really grown so much. We really didn't know what we were doing. And sometimes we still don't know what we're doing <laughs> We know a little bit <laughs> more. And yeah, it's just, it really feels like, you know, we've come a long way and we're growing and we really appreciate our audience for being here.
1: Yeah. And I personally not only enjoy doing this immensely, But I feel confident that the information we're sharing here is helpful to people who are looking for ways to live more sustainably and a little slower and to do whatever they can to have less of a negative impact on the environment
0: in their everyday life. And it's our intention to help people to learn what it means to live regeneratively from everything from what they eat to what they wear and using products that support good dirt. That's good dirt as in healthy soil, which is everything.
1: But you can support the good dirt which is this podcast, by becoming a member of our online community, The Almanac.
0: Yeah, The Almanac is a wonderful, like you said, online community platform. We host it on Mighty Networks. So you get a little app, you get in there, and you meet other lady farmers and Good Dirt listeners from really across the globe. And we've got tons of great discussions going. Every week we drop, whether it's a resource article or a recipe, and we host monthly gatherings where we meet each other, In I was about to say in person, but not in person, but we see our faces moving over Zoom. One day, maybe, in person. It's a really fun space. And whether or not you actually want to engage in all of those things, the Almanac really is the best place to support what we're doing here on The Good Dirt. So if you're enjoying the programming, please feel free To support us there in the Almanac or any other ways that you, you know, spread the word, send this episode to a friend, send an older episode to a friend that inspired you. We really, really appreciate the support. And don't forget that one of the many benefits of being an Almanac member is that
1: you get really great discounts on all of our events, including our virtual slow living
0: retreat that's coming up in December. Mm hmm. That's right. This year we are online again with the theme Embracing Winter, and we've got so much good stuff in store. We've got a welcome gathering, Lady Farmer Q&A coffee chat that's with us, some really cool workshops. We're doing yoga. We're having a happy hour. We've even got musical entertainment. Mm-hmm. And there are more details on our website at ladyfarmer.com under the tab Upcoming Events, and we'd love to have you join us. So on to the episode. Today we
1: have with us Angela Ferraro Fanning. Of Axe and Root Homestead, where we have a wonderful conversation about her homestead journey with her husband and her two children.
0: Axe and Root Homestead is a six acre farm in central New Jersey. Angela started Axe and Root in 2012 after she suffered from postpartum depression with her first child. After spending over a decade building a successful graphic design business, she longed to be outdoors, aligning her lifestyle with the seasons and with nature. So she started
1: growing and preserving her own homegrown produce. And this quickly grew from a home garden to a farm. And now she's got Clydesdales, geese, and ducks for eggs, beehives, sheep, and fruit trees. She wants to share a passion for this lifestyle with others through Instagram, online homesteading courses, her online plant-based
0: garden-to-table cookbooks, and the Little Homesteader book series published this fall. Something that I've loved about talking to people who have embraced this homesteading lifestyle is that everyone can really have their own version of that. There's as many different kinds of homesteaders and little homesteads as there are people on the planet doing it.
1: Yeah, it's like homesteading can be whatever you make of it. I really like Angela's explanation of homesteading as being a mindset.
0: Yeah, I'd never heard that before. That spoke to me, and I think it's really true. And you also, dear listeners, will learn so much in this episode about how Angela has created and is still creating this hands-on, seasonal, and locally focused lifestyle that works for her and her family.
1: And we'll let her tell you all about it. Here's Angela Ferraro Fanning of Axe and Root Homestead. Enjoy
2: so like most homesteaders that I know I came into this lifestyle unintentionally or by a happy accident I currently live on a six acre farm in central New Jersey and I'm from the Midwest but I didn't grow up in a farming family this lifestyle was not on my radar at all all. It was actually about with postpartum depression, having moved away from all of my family and friends in the Midwest, having my first child on the East Coast and being really burnt out on my graphic and website design business. And I just really needed to make a shift and was struggling between my old identity and what I wanted my new one to look like with now having a family. So I've always been into gardening, ornamentals, and then a small veggie patch. And I just knew that I wanted to do something outside with growing my own food, because I think we're all really familiar with all of the recalls that come with spinach or, you know, whatever the latest craze is from the grocery store produce that's going to kill us, you know? (laughs) So I decided to kind of take matters into my own hands and quit and closed my graphic design business that I'd worked for a decade to build and started growing my own food. And my husband is really supportive. I said, basically, I want to trade in my paycheck for time outside. And I'll try to offset our grocery bill by growing as much of our own produce as we can and preserving it for year round consumption. And so that's what I did. And then we just continued to take one step forward at a time. You know, I added a berry patch, I got a greenhouse, then we added ducks. And then the neighbors didn't like us very much when we brought in goats, and we weren't in a very farming friendly community. So it was get out of the city or quit the farming gig. And we were like, no way, this is our lifestyle. This is what we believe in. And I'd always wanted horses someday, but didn't think it was going to happen so quickly. And we found a six acre farm from 1775 with outbuildings That was perfect for the two Clydesdales that I had wanted. So the rest is kind of history. It's grown relatively quickly since we moved into this property five years ago. Very large veggie garden a mini orchard with, I think I have about 17 fruit trees now of varying types, multiple beehives, two Clydesdales for plowing. And then I also have ducks and geese and we have a livestock guardian dog. We tried sheep for a minute, but it wasn't a good fit for us. So it's a journey. It's always changing, but I'm so passionate about it. And I'm so thankful that I fell into this lifestyle because it just fits.
0: You use a horse to plow? I do. Yeah. I have two Clydesdales. That's amazing. Yeah, you're the
1: second person we've talked to in a, a week that has Clydesdales. or That's so cool. I know, I know. And our next-door neighbors have them. So I know they're enormous and impressive and really beautiful animals. And so you actually do the plowing with the horses. That's amazing. Thank you. That's by choice, obviously. Is that so you don't have to have a machine around? What led to that choice, I guess, is the better way to put that? <laughs>
2: It's a good question. I always wanted horses for riding, but when it came time to move into this farm, and I had already developed a little bit of experience with homesteading, I really wanted to combine homesteading and my love of horses. And I thought I could have stacked functions here. I could have horses for riding and companionship, but I could actually compost the manure and use that to grow my own food, you know, enhance the garden soil. And in addition, I could use Clydesdales for driving, meaning tilling. They drag out the pastures. They help spread out the manure. So it decomposes more readily. I use them for hauling and harvests. So for me, It's convenience because I don't have to have a tractor for only six acres of land and we don't farm all of them. You know, we have woods and obviously our house and our yard for the kids, but it just sort of made sense for the size of land that we have. The fact that I try to do things as organically and naturally as possible and that I just love and have so much respect for the animal to begin with that if I could use it and deepen my connection with it beyond just writing, that was something that really appealed to me.
1: I am bet the horses really enjoy having a job to do.
2: (laughs) They do. One of my horses is a, a rescue from an auction out here on the East Coast. And he's a retired Amish horse. His history isn't very good. Unfortunately, he wasn't treated very well. So it took a lot of training, conditioning, and work with a veterinarian and a farrier and a dentist to get him healthy into where he is now. And it's taken a good amount of work, a good amount of effort to get him comfortable with the idea of plowing again. I think that was a very miserable time for him. Mm. I think he was beaten very badly when he was worked to put it frankly. So now I've had to make sure that he knows this is still a safe space. You can still pull, you can still drive I'm not going to hurt you. And he's really become receptive to that, which is good. He's more comfortable. And essentially he's teaching me. I didn't know how to drive until after I got them. And I've just talked to people that I know that do it, watched a lot of YouTube videos, read a lot of books and Then he kind of fills in the gaps and shows me, well, no, you need to pull this rein harder or no, that's not hooked up right. So I've kind of put all these pieces together to learn how to drive him. My second Clydesdale is essentially a child. She's eight or nine years old and she doesn't have any plow experience. And so I'm actually training her to do it. And we've gotten as far as she's got the harness on. She has her lines, which are called the traces. That's what is connected to whatever they're pulling. She can drag those behind her comfortably. Uh, The next thing we need to do is add something very lightweight, but on the ground. So she understands what she's pulling is not chasing her, which is a really big step for them because they're prey animals. Yeah. So that's where we're at with her. What are their names? I'm just curious. So Dozer, my mare, she's used and she came with the name Dozer because she really is nothing short of a bulldozer. And it's just (laughs) fitting. And so we kept it. The other Clydesdale, the gelding, we named him Finnegan. I don't know what his previous name is at all. They didn't provide me with any paperwork or anything from the auction. But already he learned that name within a year, which was incredible. I didn't know that they would learn their names that quickly. But I guess maybe I say it enough that he's just gotten used to it.
0: Oh, that's a great story. Thanks. So my parents currently live on a little farm, actually sounds like a similar size, it's seven acres, and they do have a tractor, but Mm -hmm. it's my dad's thing, and my mom's always saying how it's just always breaking, getting stuck or it's just, it's a fun, it's great for my dad. Sure. And it's makes a lot of things a lot easier, obviously, but I imagine that horses don't break as much, I would imagine. Well, I
1: guess there's, there's a whole nother set of maintenance and everything. Yeah. But even my husband admits that the tractor he got was overkill for our little property, but mm. he got it kind of early on and I now mean, he uses it. He uses it a whole lot. Sure.
2: You know, we definitely, it's not that I've shied away from motors or anything like that. You know, we have a a four-wheeler that I use for calling manure out. You know, it 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 does take a lot of time to hook up a horse, to get all of their tack on and get everything hooked up to get them into position, to have the equipment that you want them to pull behind them in place before you put them there. You know, there's a lot of planning. It really does take almost half hour to 45 minutes to get everything set up before you can actually start working. So, absolutely, there are some tasks that I just do with my four wheeler. I can jump on it, start it, go do whatever I need to do, and come back. And that's really important to have that flexibility when you have kids, right? Because there's just so many times where I just need to run out for a quick second to do something. Yeah. There's not a lot of time in a day when I have them around and try to do everything with drafts. But I do really just enjoy the manual process, the connection between, you know, farmer and horse. And I feel that when there's a proper opportunity for that, I do prefer that method as opposed to using a four-wheeler or tractor.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. And tell us how you came up with the name, Axe and Root. I'm fascinated by that. When we
2: started the homestead at our previous property, that's when the name started. We just brought it with to the farm we're at now. We don't really swing a lot of axes literally and physically. My husband just says that I'm a big axe swinger because I'm always just like, let's just go for it. Let's just do it. And he... Is always like, no, wait a second, let's plant our feet in the ground. Let's really think about this. And he's so analytical and we kind of drive each other crazy, honestly, just call it Axe and Root Homestead. So there isn't really any true meaning behind it other than that.
0: It just sort of fits our personalities.
1: Oh, I think that's a great story. Great illustration of the combination of energies there that.
0: Yeah, that you need on a homestead.
1: Coalesced into your all's operation. That's wonderful. Oh, thanks. So was there an aha moment Somewhere in your life, you explained how you were sort of getting fed up with your graphics business. But do you have a Mm -hmm. particular scene in mind where just everything just kind of shifted?
2: I think there was a lot of foreshadowing. I don't know if there necessarily was this big light bulb moment. But now looking back, I see that this lifestyle was coming. We used to love to travel, and we've been all over the world. Very fortunate and blessed to have the opportunities to do that. And that stopped when we had kids, because obviously it becomes a lot more difficult. But when we were traveling to these different countries our favorite places to stay were at farms because it gave us a real local feel. And it was an opportunity to get to know a family, see sort of how they live their life differently than we do as North Americans. And that was just so awesome to me to like, You know, when I went to Argentina, for example, I stayed at an Estancia and we got to ride horses with the cowboys there. And the way that they saddle up their horses is incredibly different than the way that we do it here. They just use a blanket and a rope that they fashion into the halter and the reins. There's no bit. There's nothing. And so I was so fascinated by that. And now looking back, I see, oh, I think I've always had an interest in it. It was more hands off. You look at the Estancia to the Olive Grove I stayed at in Italy to, you know, wherever I was at. It just was something that was really fascinating to me. And now I see that it was sort of the push. It was guiding me in the direction of where I was going to take my life, if that makes sense. Yeah, I
1: can identify a lot with that, like things sort of appealing over the years and attracting you and pulling you. And yeah, it took me yeah. several decades, but eventually did it.
2: <laughs> Good for you. I think that's the biggest step is just making the leap into finally doing it. Yeah.
1: And just sort of just following the urge and see, you know, what is this about? Where is this taking me? Where is this going? And lo and right. behold. <laughs> I think there's a level of being calm
2: Comfort with going into the unknown, because when people start farming or homesteading, I, I guess I don't know if you're from a farming yeah. family, but for me, I wasn't. And so it I really was a jump. Like I really had to be comfortable with the idea that I was basically going to be putting myself back through school and educating myself as much as I could, as quickly as I could for whatever it was that I wanted to do and talking to people and reading, it's kind of a blind leap of faith. And I do love it. I think that's one of the things I love about it. And I also
0: think there's a certain element of being okay with things. It's just constant things not working and failing. And it could be seasons before you see the thing that you planted doing what you wanted to do. It's just trial and error over long periods of time. It just takes a real commitment to just the process
1: Yes, absolutely. You have to be
0: okay with like letting go of control.
1: Yeah, things take years to work themselves out. All these experiments, like you do an experiment in the garden, it doesn't work well. You got to wait another year (laughs) to the next time it rolls around. But you're especially ambitious in saying at the beginning, you wanted to grow your own food. My Mm -hmm. husband and I sort of just, we moved to a farm. We didn't say like, oh, we're going to grow our own food and have animals. That stuff just sort of evolved out of being in the environment more. But for you to say, we're going to grow our own food and just start doing it, that's incredibly courageous.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And especially at first, how did it work and where did you fill in? And and are you like fully growing all your own stuff now? How's that work?
1: Sure, that's a good question.
2: So I mentioned before our first property was only three quarters of an acre. So already we're on a space restriction. So I learned a lot from urban farmers in inner city communities who grow up and not out, taking advantage of trellises, hanging planter boxes where possible. I replaced a lot of the ornamental landscaping with edible landscaping. And it really became about using every square inch of space, succession planting, companion planting, learning different techniques to work within the physical restraints that I had. It became something where it was, okay, well, first I'm going to grow all of our own lettuce. And then once I feel like I kind of get that nailed down I'm going to start growing our strawberries and then I'm going to work on herbs you know so it was just sort of picking out one thing at a time because one if you try to grow everything absolutely all at once you're setting yourself up to be overwhelmed and I think a lot of failure comes with that and then that's when people want to give yeah. up so it was really learning the nuances cuz every plant really does have their own nutritional soil needs the way that they need to be harvested is unique so I really needed to tap into each of the needs of the different crops and figure out how to get them to grow as best as possible, as efficiently and as quickly as possible. So I studied a lot and I learned a lot on that. Then it became preservation because I didn't have any experience in canning. I mean, you can cut things up and put them in a freezer, but that's not actually what you want to do. You want to blanch them, spread them out on a sheet, then you flash freeze them, then you stick them back in the freezer. So I was learning food preservation processes, getting a root cellar set up. And I started picking, we didn't have apple trees. And so I started picking apples at a local community farm where you could go and pick apples for free. And I would take them home and I learned to make applesauce and learn how to preserve them for consumption for several months out into the winter season. So it really was just learning step-by-step. Initially, it didn't replace our grocery bill by any means. I mean, we still need dry goods, We still need flour. I learned to make bread, but it put a huge dent in our produce bills. And honestly, my husband and I felt a shift in our health because the fruit and the vegetables that we were eating was so much more dense with nutrition than what we were getting on grocery store shelves. So we started having more energy. We were sleeping better and it really did make a difference in our day-to-day functioning. When we moved to the bigger property, I got the beehives and we started bringing in honey. I was Tapping trees in a very small capacity at the previous property, but now I tap more. So I'm making maple syrup. We very rarely buy fruits and vegetables unless, for example, my kids want something like an avocado or a banana or a pineapple. If I'm making tomato sauce, but I'm at a weird spot in my garden where maybe I have a half bushel, it's not really enough to can. And so I'm going to go offset that and buy a few more because I don't have room in the freezer to freeze those tomatoes until more are ready out of my garden. So yes, I still do absolutely go to the grocery store for all of our dry goods, condiments and sauces, but we're no longer reliant on it, which is really liberating. I don't have to rely on a grocery store in order to get my food, which was huge during the coronavirus. We didn't go to a store for three months and we were absolutely, totally comfortable. We were fine.
0: That's very cool. Yeah. What about your meat? Did you mention that earlier? Do you guys raise any meat?
2: Well, I have a very simple answer to that. We don't eat meat.
0: Oh, wow.
2: Okay. (laughs) So that's not a concern for us at all. We grow a lot of our protein in terms of beans. I've grown quinoa. You know, my kids love peanut butter. I don't grow peanuts here. So we have to buy peanut butter. But no, we don't eat any meat products. Do you do chickens? We have ducks.
1: Eggs. Honestly, it's an unpopular opinion, but chickens kind of freak me out. <laughs> That's fair.
0: They're weird looking.
1: In the permaculture community, they say ducks are kind of the new chicken.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: they're more hardy. And they tend to, I think it's a very sensitive topic still. A lot of people they tend to get a little worked up when you say that chickens aren't as healthy as ducks. But the reality of it is there just aren't as many diseases that affect ducks as there are chickens. Mm. And they are naturally more hardy and resistant. Sure, they can still get sick. Sure, they still could be outside in the stream that couldn't make them ill. But as a whole, they are incredibly low-maintenance animals.
1: I wonder if they are less prone to predation because they're bigger. That's a thing. Personally, we have
2: experienced still a lot of predator attacks. We have a livestock guardian dog, and we also have geese, guardian geese, to protect the ducks. We live on a little waterway. But it's enough water that we have heron and crane that come through here. And they actually pierce the ducks. They stab them with their, their bills because they're like long swords. Oh, I've heard of this. They eat ducks. Yeah, as do hawks when they're young. We also have bear, bobcats, coyote, supposed mountain lion coming down out of the mountains in
1: Pennsylvania nearby. So we definitely have a high predator load.
2: So that's why we bring
1: in the dogs. Wow. Tell us about A Day in the Life at Axon Root Homestead and I know you have kids and you have all these mm-hmm. gardens and animals. So tell us about your day. Sure.
2: So my day starts about six thirty, seven o'clock. I get up, I make the coffee, I let our house dog outside, a golden retriever, and then I go outside Axlu, our our um, livestock guardian dog is then done with his shift for the night. So he gets fed and usually he comes in the house if it's hot and I let the ducks and the geese out, feed the horses and then I go back in for breakfast and I make the kids lunch and we just sort of have our morning together. And then when the kids go off to school. That's when I come back outside, do the farm chores, weeding, planting, harvesting, or whatever major project I have around the farm that time of year. It could be checking bees. It could be harvesting sap for syrup, could be building something. But I try to get everything done while my kids are away so that when they come home, I'm on their time. And it's a good balance for me as well. It's a nice break because the farm can be very consuming, especially when you live there. So the kids come home from school. We spend our our afternoon together and then it's time for dinner and then time for evening rounds, closing everything up, feeding the animals, making sure everyone is safe and secure. And then it's just winding down time for everybody for the night and going to bed and repeating it all the next day. There are some unique things, unique projects that have been coming up lately. A lot of book writing has been happening. We donate harvest to the food pantry. So that may take up a day here and there. So it really no two days are alike. Honestly, I try to follow a routine,
1: but it varies. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. And especially <laughs> this time of year when you've got your tables piled with squash or tomatoes or something and you really, you have to do something with yes. it or it's going to go bad. And yeah. Yes. So I know what you mean. So how many kids do you have and, and did you have to homeschool them last year? I have two boys. I have a four-year-old
2: and a nine-year-old last Year so when COVID started, the schools closed down. They started doing impromptu remote learning. So they would log on to the computer. Then we had you know our, our summer vacation last year. I think we started the year remotely, but we ended up going sort of on a half and half schedule. They would go to school for a few hours a day. They would come home. They would log on, and it was in an effort to reduce the time they were spending in the classroom, but they were still getting a full day's worth of education. But when COVID started initially. And the parents really had to get involved in the education of the children. That was such a challenge, as it was for everyone, right? We're all of a sudden in a different lifestyle. But managing the farm, yes, absolutely was challenging when having kids at home and trying to be hands-on with their learning simultaneously.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Do they get involved with the farm much? Like, do they have chores and stuff?
2: I think it sort of depends on the season. Right now, it's a bit too warm. They're more apt to want to come out with me in the spring, you know, after they've been cooped up all winter. And then likely when it cools down a bit here, they'll want to come out again. But sometimes they harvest, they like to help put the ducks away. They like to get the eggs. Mostly I try to never enforce it as a chore because I've heard horror stories of people growing up on farms and their parents not letting them play until the farm chores were done. And this is sort of a lifestyle that I've chosen and they've sort of fallen into by default then. It's not something that I chose for them to do.
1: So they're they're they're
2: more than welcome to join me, but they don't have to.
0: That's cool. You're a cool mom. Yeah, I
2: think that's very wise.
0: (laughs) Thank you. So what do you consider to be some of your greatest challenges in pursuing this lifestyle? And then also on the other side, what are some of the greatest joys and accomplishments? What are you most proud of? There is nothing like making
2: a meal 100% derived from ingredients that you've made at home or grown at home. Oh, yeah, That is just my heart bursts. And then If you feed that to my kids and they actually like it, oh my God, overjoyed, right? Like that is just the cherry on top. It's just, it's perfect. And it makes me so happy. But, you know, just being able to harvest your own food is huge. Being able to walk up to a sleeping Clydesdale who is laying down and is naturally a prey animal. And doesn't want to be approached when they're sleeping, but they're okay with me snuggling up next to them while they're on the ground. This 2,000 pound animal, that's amazing. That's a really cool feeling. Getting to open up a beehive. I mean, secretly, I kind of hate keeping bees because it's a lot of work. And every time you want to go in to do something very quickly, it takes an hour. And it's unsettling, truly, when you have all these bees flying all over you. But what magic to like be inside their hive and see in between the frames and look into that world that most people don't ever get to see. You know, that's that's a privilege. And then getting to feed my community, you know, with the donations to the food pantry or having friends over and having them help with the harvest or eat something that I've grown. Those are all very prideful experiences. The bad things would be that you're never, ever, ever going to get everything done that you want to get done in a day. And you have to learn to be okay with that. And if you don't learn to be okay with it, you're going to drive yourself crazy. There's just not enough hours in a day. And I don't want my kids to remember me working all the time. So I have to be okay with not getting everything done. And that's taken a long time for me to sort of be okay with. And then also knowing that you're going to make mistakes, you're going to lose animals. Those are always the hard parts, right? You mentioned losing your chickens when something does get to my ducks, which is why we ultimately then had to bring in a guardian dog. That sucks, you know, when you're supposed to be the steward for those animals and you didn't protect them as well as you could have. So there's definitely bad days, bad experiences. But I think most homesteaders and farmers would absolutely tell you that the good always, always outweighs the bad.
1: Oh, for sure. So you said, you know, you like to get the farm chores done before the kids get home so you can be with them. So what do you guys like to do when you're not doing farm chores or cooking? Do you like to read? Are there favorite books or movies? And what do y'all do as a family in your free time? Sure.
2: So we like to do little day trips together. We go to other farms. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We go to other farms. We go to wineries. We even take the kids with, we go out with friends. They come to our house. We go to theirs. We're very social. My husband recently started sailing. He has encouraged me so much with the farm. It really is sort of my thing that I want. And I encourage him to go do his thing as well, which is sailing. So recently he's gotten a sailboat and we go on the boat together from time to time as a family. We do a lot of reading. We play a lot of games together when we're just staying at home. Meal time is not just a quick dinner and then getting up and leaving. We actually sit down together. We chat. It takes a little while. Cooking together is a process. Personally, I'm a very big reader. I'm a sucker for crime and thrillers. And I also like Russian literature. So I do like to read year round. That's sort of my closing before I go to bed at night.
1: Oh, yeah. I love Russian literature too. Anna Karenina. Do you? Oh, yeah.
2: I love that
0: you guys sail too. That's great. Yeah. And so
2: where do you sail? So we don't sail on the ocean. My husband's too new for that. It's going to take a few years to get some practice under his belt. But there's a little lake about 15 minutes from our house. And so we actually went with the kids just on a hike out there one day. And there were a bunch of sailboats for sale. And they ended up being incredibly affordable just for a small sailboat. Just enough to hold four people with a small sleeper cabin. And he jumped on it. So it only takes 15 minutes to get there and we get a total chain of scenery in just a few minutes time. It's amazing. It's a
1: real context shift they call that. Yeah, absolutely. So and you're in New Jersey, right? I am. And we're in New Jersey and New Jersey is vast. So we
2: are in central New Jersey. It is about an hour from the shore, which is to the east. I'm on the more Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. side. And I'm also maybe about an hour south and sort of west of New York City. And then it only takes about an hour north of here to get to the Poconos. So we really have all different landscapes around here. I, I do love it here very much. Originally, when we thought about moving to New Jersey, I just pictured Newark, mm-hmm. I think, as I think most yeah. people tend to do. You just picture the concrete and the turnpike, but it's absolutely stunning
0: when you get out of that I'll area. hear that over and over again. And you know, this is not the first podcast yeah. where we've talked about how surprising it is that New Jersey is yeah. beautiful. <laughs>
1: It's come it up is so it has the Pine Barrens and, and all of that. And do you ever get an itch to go into New York? I do. So that's actually why we live out
2: here. So I'm an art maker. Oh. And when I was in college, the arts program there offered trips over spring break every year. You jump on a, a big Greyhound bus and it would drive 22 hours straight to get from that portion of Wisconsin to downtown New York City. And so I did that for multiple years and completely fell in love with the city and was just hell bent on living there someday. And I got really, really close when my husband accepted a job out East, initially where his office was located at the time, we could have lived in the city and commuted, but I was my third trimester when we finally moved. And it was like, you know what? No, we're not going to try living in the city and then have him be an hour or more away by car if I go into labor. I need to be closer to his office, closer to the hospital. And so I never quite made it to living in
0: New York. <laughs> but you're very close. You're very close. Maybe relative. someday. Yes. Yeah, you are. And we
1: live just 45 minutes outside of D.C. Do you? I do. And Emma actually lives in D.C. That We're in D.C. right now recording this. But we lived here for several years before we went out to the farm, it's good to be able to come back and come in for whatever you want, shows or restaurants or stuff. But haven't done too much of that, really. We've been out there nine years and um, Mm -hmm. just really haven't done a lot of that. But it's good to know you can. And at times we have. Sure. I guess I sort of got it out of my system or something. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Well, we'll take the kids in occasionally to see like a Broadway show or to take them to a
2: museum or something like that. Of course, there was a long, long period of time where anytime we had relatives, in from the Midwest, we all had to go to Times Square. And I think that really put a bad taste in my mouth about going to the city for a while because I was just constantly going to these tourist infested areas. They're so busy and you're, you know, bumping into each other. My favorite bookstore is in the city, which is called Strand. And I would make a special trip just to go into that bookstore any day. So I does have this purpose. I don't mind going in occasionally, but I definitely prefer the quiet. I think if I had to choose, you know, being out here in the country, suits me better now at this time of my life.
1: Yeah. There was a time when, as you say, family and friends would come visit and everybody wants to go down to the National Mall and all the museums and stuff, which is great. Yeah. But I got to the point where you guys go and we'll be here when you get back. (laughs)
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. We'll have dinner ready. We'll have our farm raised dinner ready. There you go. Yes, that's exactly right. Speaking of books and bookstores and all that, tell us about your new cookbook. I know it's just came out, right? The Harvest Table?
2: Yeah. So, this last year has been a bit of a whirlwind for me. I've written five books in the past year. One of those books is The Harvest Table, which I co wrote with another Instagram homesteader, Annette of Azure Farm. And we both are plant based homesteaders. So, we're both a little unusual. We don't raise any animals for meat. And so all of our recipes are pretty much things that you can grow or source from a local farm or a CSA box, and you can eat from your garden or fresh produce year round. And we've divided the cookbook up into the four seasons so that each recipe reflects what should be readily available to you at any given time. And most of those are gluten-free. And each recipe also includes a homesteading or garden-related tip. So for example, if you're going to open it up and you see something with tomatoes in it, I think Annette has a tomato tart recipe in there your little homesteader tip would tell you about when to harvest tomatoes or maybe something better to fertilize them with. So we want it to be a resource with relation to homesteading, gardening, more than just a cookbook. It has a bit more meat to it than that.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And it's available now?
2: It's available now on Amazon. Yeah, it's called The Harvest Table. So
1: tell us about the other books.
2: So the other books, it's a four-part series called The Little Homesteader Series. And Each of the four encapsulates one season. The books were an interesting challenge because I had to write them in a way that would be engaging for children, but would teach adults how to homestead. It's illustrated so that children stay interested in the content. However, it's available in not only the US, but in the UK, New Zealand, and Australia with the rights to print in other markets all over the world. So that means with primary markets being the US and the UK, I had to create activities and recipes for ingredients and for the climates that both countries share, which was really interesting because we say things differently. Our measurements are different. Even our ingredients are different. So that was a bit of a learning curve for me, but it's recipes, activities, and wisdom. And it's all printed on recycled paper with vegetable and soy-based inks. It's completely eco-friendly, small shop printing. And unfortunately, Due to COVID and the canal backup, I think, it won't be coming out in the U.S. until spring. You'll find the spring and summer seasons in 2022 and then fall and winter next fall. However in the uk new zealand and australia and any other markets that are printing the fall and winter titles will release september 7th of just this year so just another oh, week
1: wow that's exciting oh you must be really yeah. really excited about that that sounds so great I, I know all these homeschool families are gonna love this i hope so i
2: tried really hard to make it something that people could use for that purpose it would be something that families could do together They could do it just, you know, randomly for random family fun and togetherness and activities, or they could use it in a homeschooling capacity. So it's definitely educational and also really hands-on so everybody can be involved.
0: Oh, wow. And also you were saying things are different in US and UK, but I imagine aren't the seasons even different in like Australia? It's like a different hemisphere. So did you have to switch them? I was going to ask that too. Did or you? I guess they're the same. They just have <laughs> a different time. That's a good question. So I don't know how the
2: publisher will be handling that. I don't know if on the spring title for Australia, yeah. it'll show snow on yeah. the cover. But yeah. that was something that we definitely had to tap into. So in in the UK, they don't get lot of snow. You know, it's more of a rainy season. And so I had to limit the amount of activities that involved snow to like one. It was a challenge. That's for sure.
0: And you have a podcast as well, don't you? Yeah, I do.
2: I'm very busy. (laughs) (laughs) The podcast is called The Definitely Not Simple Life. It's myself and two other homesteaders, Mandy of Wild Oak Farms and Renee of Mountain Woods Farm. And we're all located in different geographical areas across the U.S., Um, We all have different animals. I'm a vegetarian. They raise animals for meat. But each episode sort of covers a different facet of homesteading. So we might be talking about canning on one episode. Another one, we could be talking about ducks versus chickens, or we could talk about processing. I am not a veterinary professional. Mandy and Renee are. So they bring a lot of really valuable insight to the table from a medical background. It's really nice because we don't agree on everything we all have different experience and different specialties so it kind of creates a well-rounded space for us to answer questions that people have and a lot of it is beginner content you know things that people feel like they're embarrassed to ask they sh- they feel like they should know it but how else would they know it unless they have hands-on experience So it's created a nice space for us to be able to answer questions and educate the homesteading community.
0: That is so cool to have all of those different perspectives. And it is really interesting that you are a homesteading vegetarian, actually. (laughs) I think maybe people who are more not as in this world, that might be more obvious to them. Mm -hmm. Kind of, you know, people want that nature and want to be close to nature. Of course, they'd be a vegetarian. But actually, in homesteading land, that's not quite the case. So it's just right. really interesting. So have you ever been tempted to not be a vegetarian? I don't know. Did you come into it as a vegetarian? Sort of what's your overlying philosophy behind that? Sure. And you don't have to tiptoe. <laughs> I don't get offended.
2: <laughs> I know it can be a really heated and taboo topic for some people. For me, I used to eat meat up until about a decade ago. And my husband just wasn't feeling very energized. Anytime that we had a meal that Contained a lot of meat. He just didn't like the way he felt afterwards. He felt really heavy. So we started experimenting with more vegetarian options. And then I also felt that personally, I just had more energy and I wasn't feeling so weighed down by my food. When we started homesteading, though, it sort of put the nail in the coffin that I definitely just sort of wanted to stay vegetarian from here on out because if I was going to eat meat, I would want to be able to raise it myself. And process the animal myself i feel like caring for the animal and then processing it yourself shows the ultimate appreciation for the fact that that life is giving you life essentially i can't process an animal i could i just couldn't bring myself to do it and i'm not saying that i have judgment for anybody who does it's just for me emotionally i don't think i could bring myself to do it so i feel for me i would just rather not eat meat
0: yeah, we both eat meat, and we get our meat from a farm. Mm-hmm. We let someone else. Yeah, raise I don't it know if like, you and I. Cook. <laughs> I have done it, but it's. Not, I don't think I could do it regularly.
1: No, I'm like yeah. totally in in sync with that idea that if you're going to eat meat, you really need to appreciate the source and yeah to know to have knowledge at least knowledge if you're not going to do it yourself have knowledge that the animal was well treated and well fed because you want the best nutrition and all that for the animal and then later on for you and. And to know that it was responsibly harvested and humanely harvested and all those things. We're not set up to do that ourselves at our farm, but we Mm -hmm. do support a very responsible farmer in the area that does all those things and that we know them well and we know a lot about their operations. So that's our way of handling it. And then also being in the CSA is a full diet CSA. We get dairy, meat, grains, beans, produce. It's really unusual. There's not that many of them in the country. Wow. It's amazing. It's amazing. That's impressive. So, that frees me up in the garden to do lots of herbs and flowers, and I like to do medicinal herbs and things like that, and supplement what I would be getting there. Like, for instance, I like growing my own greens because lots of times if you bring greens home from the CSA and don't get around to them for a couple of days, they're not as fresh. But if I have my own little lettuce patch or chard or whatever out there, I can go pull it. It's perfectly fresh and it's not that hard to grow. And so we sort of do a hybrid version of growing our own food. (laughs) Sure. That's great. I
2: think when I tell people my mission is to grow my own food, I think some people might be overwhelmed or turned off by that in a way because they think, well, maybe that's what all homesteaders look like, right? Is they're really passionate about growing all of their food hundred percent. And I think I tend to be, I don't want to say an extremist, but I think I'm an unusual case because for me, I I do want to grow as much of my own produce as I can, but I think there's absolutely nothing wrong. And and I encourage people to source locally, you know, right now I don't have as many apples as I'd like because my trees are still young. So chances are I'm going to go pick out some bushels from another local farm. I think that it's just about weighing your time and where you want to put your energy versus how locally you want to source your own food. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean,
1: that's the bottom line. And that's, you know, we talked to a lot of people on here. And the main thing is the importance of eating locally, not having your food shipped around the world or across the country. And you said it earlier, appreciating the nutrition density and superiority of these things that are grown responsibly and close by and all that. So... I
0: like to think about another one of our Good dirt podcast guests said that it comes down to kind of a estimated figure but it takes about a quarter of an acre to feed a person over their life mm-hmm. yeah. and so if everyone in the world took responsibility for their quarter of an acre the world would be a better place. And that means either <laughs> so, doing it yeah. yourself. So if, it's, if you need to outsource it or yeah. do it yourself. So I kind of, I think I like to think about that. Like how am I caring for my quarter acre? I don't have a quarter acre of arable land for me to mm-hmm. farm. So I hire the farmer to, to do that on her farm. Sure. Well, yeah. And even if you do
2: have the land and and the space,
0: we all can't do everything, right? right? We all
2: can't be dairy farmers and cattle farmers and gardeners and tree tappers and beekeepers. We can't do it all. And so it just becomes about finding what your passion is, what your expertise is and really just where do you want to spend your time? And if it's not in the garden or if it's not caring for, for livestock, yeah. you know, then you find, like you said, somebody that you trust, that you respect, you like their practices to source those goods from.
0: And it becomes a beautiful community thing because in our community, like my mom makes a lot of milk kefir and our neighbor bakes mm-hmm. a lot of bread. And, you know, we have a fruit mm-hmm. orchard down the road. And so it really turns into a beautiful symbiotic, bartering community. And we want
1: people to understand that the word homesteading, maybe historically in this country, it started out to mean very self-sufficient, like you did everything. But I Mm -hmm. like to think of the modern homesteading is more of like, as Emma says, a homesteading community. You Mm -hmm. do what you have time for and what you choose to do, but there are other people, hopefully in your community that'll grow the blueberries or bakes the bread or whatever. And everybody can just take advantage of everybody else's expertise and where they're putting their energies. Absolutely.
2: I think homesteading just comes back to a mindset. It's not about what's outside your window necessarily. It's about wanting to live more in alignment with the seasons, wanting to rely more locally for your diet. It's about using your hands and revisiting some of those trades that aren't as popular anymore doing things manually instead of with a machine. I think it's just more about hands-on local
1: seasonal living. Being in touch with the things that we need every day, being in touch with the source of what mm-hmm. we need every day, I think is really key.
0: Yeah. Right. So what does the good dirt
2: mean to you? I think just being a grower, somebody who gardens, I take it literally. And I just think that good soil, good dirt is the foundation for everything. You cannot have a good harvest. You can have a tomato, but it it can lack all nutrients. If the soil that it wasn't grown in isn't properly nourished, you have to give back. You can't keep taking from the earth, from the dirt, from the soil. You have to feed it. You have to put back into it what you take out of it. And for me, the good dirt is just understanding the relationship between soil and your food and ultimately you as a human and taking responsibility for that and just giving back to it.
0: Yeah, that's so true. I haven't thought of it like that. You have to give back to it. Yeah. You have to.
1: The good dirt is reciprocal. It's a reciprocal relationship. You might be the first person that's ever touched on that, Angela.
0: Actually, oh well, you get the award.
1: That's cool. (laughs) So, in closing, what would you like to leave our audience with about yourself or the work that you do, or just anything else you want to talk about that we haven't covered? I think a lot of people, at
2: least I did, started listening
1: to homesteading podcasts,
2: farm podcasts, because there's some sort of glimmer of interest or longing to get back to roots. And then followed by that energy and that interest is usually a feeling of not really despair, but almost like this is too hard. I can't do this. I'm telling everybody listening that you absolutely can do it. All you have to do is start with a tomato. Go to the store, get a seed, get a seedling, put it in a tomato pot and just see how it feels to grow your own tomato plant. Taste that tomato, harvest it for the first time and you'll know what it is to be a homesteader because that feeling, that pride that comes with harvesting that first tomato is addictive. And that's where you want to start baking your own bread, growing an apple tree, making your own applesauce getting your own chickens or ducks for eggs. It just continues to build. And I think people become so disconnected that when they take the leap into just doing that first step, growing a tomato plant, growing an herb, it just clicks for people. And they experience so much pride and excitement. And it's not hard. It's just a matter of time. Picking one thing to learn at a time. Don't overwhelm yourself. Keep it simple and keep it basic. You can visit me online at axonroothomestead.com. I'm on Instagram at axonroothomestead. I offer online courses through my website. So if there's something in particular like soap making, tree tapping, growing your own food that you want to learn, but maybe just haven't found a good way to do so, I can teach you those things through my online class that you stream at your convenience. But it really just is a matter of taking that first step. And it's
0: so rewarding when you do. Thank you so much for putting it into those words. Your story and the way that you talk about things makes it feel so accessible Yeah, in a way that I know sometimes it isn't for people.
1: And it's a really wonderful that in in these times, we don't have to be isolated on our homesteads. And as we were saying just a minute ago, we don't have to do it all by ourselves. (laughs) There's so many resources and so many people and everybody in this community is so willing and eager to share and share their experiences and their knowledge. And it's just really very uplifting. I have found definitely more often than
2: not, homesteaders and farmers are some of the most kind people who just want to help others.
0: Yeah, because it's just such we an exciting... We literally can't survive without each other. Like there's no there's no such thing as like competition almost. <laughs> right. <laughs> like... This is true. Yeah. This is true. But it's really cool.
1: It's just such an exciting effort, movement or whatever. And mm-hmm. it's just very healing, I think, for our souls and the soil Planet. and the souls and <laughs> all of those things. But...
0: Well, thank so, you so much, Angela. Yes, it's been such a pleasure you. talking to you today.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on your podcast. I appreciate it so much. Thank
1: you for asking me. And we look forward to checking out your books and your podcasts and all those things. So thank you so much. So thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you so much, Angela, for sharing your wonderful story. I'm so inspired. And I really want to get my hands on some of those little homesteader books. I'm going to do that after this. And good dirt listeners, we appreciate you so much. Thank you for being here every week. If you are new, make sure you check us out at ladyfarmer.com. We are Lady Farmer on Instagram. And we would love to have you join us for our virtual retreat in December. It is the greatest joy meeting all of you in person and making these real connections across the internet and the podcast airwaves. Yes. And we'd love to have you join us in the Almanac, our online community. Yes. And until then, we will see you next week on The Good Dirt. Thank you so much.